0: Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to the podcast. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of PlantYourself.com. Before we get to today's interview, a little housekeeping. First of all, big thanks to the following podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Elizabeth Clifton, Brittany Porter, Amy Good, Jerry LaPlaca for your generous support this month of the podcast. This is the first recording I'm doing with my new used DBX-286A mic preamp compressor in the recording chain, and hopefully it's improving the audio quality and your listening experience. Anyway, it will as soon as I figure out what all the knobs do. If you get the podcast but not the email newsletter, consider going to plantyourself.com and signing up. comes to your inbox the day of or the day after I put up a podcast, and I include links to articles, to the show notes, and to my weekly TV show, Triangle, Be Well. Plus, my grammar is way better in writing. And now, today's show. Irving Kirsch is a Harvard researcher who spent the early part of his career exploring one of the most fascinating, powerful, and unacknowledged aspects of healing, the placebo effect. That is, the phenomenon that if you think you are getting an effective treatment, then your mind will trick your body into getting better. The placebo effect, the fact that it occurs at all, is the reason clinical trials need twice as many human subjects as they would otherwise, because we need to be sure that the drug itself has a positive effect independent of the placebo effect. That is, it's better than a sugar pill and a lie. So while diving into the subtleties and ethical considerations of placebo, Kirsch found what he thought was a perfect condition to study, depression. If placebos work by giving hope, and depression is characterized by hopelessness, he reasoned, then he would probably find a robust placebo effect in the treatment of depression. That's when things started getting crazy. The more Kirsch and his colleagues looked over the published literature, the more it appeared that every single benefit attributed to the blockbuster depression drugs like Prozac could be explained, explained away in fact, by the placebo effect. But I can't tell the story as well as he can. So without further ado... Irving Kirsch, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. Thanks. So I wanted to talk to you about specifically your work around antidepressants, but um, before that, more broadly, your work with placebos. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a really interesting topic in that it's everywhere, but it's kind of the water we swim in in medical research. We don't really pay much attention to it. Can you Tell me um, like your background. How did you first become interested in studying placebos?
1: Well, I got interested in studying those back when I was still an undergraduate uh, psychology major. There's something that just fascinated me about, about the whole idea that you could take something and, and uh, there was nothing in it, but you believed there was, and something would happen that could sometimes be profound. Um, I've just been interested in the whole idea of people's expectations and beliefs, and how that influences their experience, and that's been the focus of my research uh, since I was an undergraduate and a student. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so for 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 folks who are maybe new to this, can you describe what what is the placebo effect and and why is it so important?
1: Sure. Well, placebos have been around in medicine for thousands of years. I guess for most of the history of medicine was dominated by the placebo effect until modern uh, times when people were giving sub- substances that they thought were effective medications uh, that turned out not to be, but yet people seemed to get better uh, anyway. Then when uh, people discovered that indeed it's not the substance and the medication that's making people better, but often it's just the belief that getting treatment, they started realizing that they needed to control for that in clinical trials in order to determine whether particular medications or procedures were having a real physical, physically-based effect or whether it was a psychologically-based effect. And uh, that was done for many, many years, but more recently, people have just gotten interested in trying to understand Uh, What is it about this effect, this phenomenon that uh, helps people to improve, sometimes can make people worse as well, that um, is based psychologically rather than uh, chemically? and That's what the placebo effect is, is all about. It's what happens when you think you're getting a treatment, but really there's nothing physical in the treatment that is causing the change. Any change that's happening is psychological.
0: Mm. So it went from being something that was not not really on the radar to kind of a a medical nuisance for a long time. It was something you were trying to get rid of to show that your treatment, your drug, your surgery, your procedure was effective. Right. So that's so, right, so, and
1: that's still the most frequent use of placebos is as a control, as a way of making sure that it's the actual drug or the actual surgical incision that's that's making a, a difference, but. There's been an an increasing tendency of scholars uh, to look at the placebo effect, to try to understand it, and to see, well, now we have something that does something, how can we make use of that? Mm
0: -hmm. Because I remember when I was in the early 90s, I was very interested in what were called alternative therapies then, and I guess sort of still are, things like homeopathy and prayer uh, that, that didn't necessarily have any physical explanation for them and their critics would always say well this is just placebo effect and you know that that was the the phraseology used to dismiss it as not being real
1: Yeah, and you know the one problem that i've had in in the years of my years of studying it is the word just or merely it's only the placebo effect it's just the placebo effect all of which makes it sound like the placebo effect is not important and is not very large. And one of the things that we have learned is that for certain conditions and under certain circumstances, the placebo effect can be very large and not something to be just dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm.
0: So um, I know you've you've done a lot of research on sort of what goes into creating a larger placebo effect or a smaller placebo effect, like the the, the type of pill, the color, thing. What 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 are the things that you've discovered that are sort of you know interesting, surprising, sort of you know the kind of cool trivia around placebo that uh, that would make someone smile?
1: Well, you've mentioned a couple of them. One is is the color. It turns out that color makes a difference, and uh, blue pills are better at uh, Producing calming sedative effects, and red and white pills are better at producing energizing uh, effects and blocking pain. So that's one thing that's uh, probably unexpected until you you read about it. The apparent price of a placebo, a placebo that costs more, seems to be more effective than a placebo that costs less. Brand name, a recognized brand name, gives you a stronger effect than uh, having something be a generic, I suppose, The companies that are selling medications that are branded, even when generics are available, know that and are making use of that they're able to get people to buy a more expensive product when the identical product without the brand name is also available. And people who believe in that brand name are probably getting a better effect uh, from the medication because of the uh, placebo uh, component. The mode of administration makes a difference. Place- placebo capsules can be better than placebo pills. Placebo injections are better than placebo capsules or pills. And placebo surgery, is that, that's the best placebo uh, uh, of all. There have been studies in which people have been cut open and sewn back up without doing this surgical invention. It's a control for a surgical procedure to see if it's really the surgery that's making a difference. you got a lot of... Uh, placebo effect with that kind of placebo. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, you mentioned that there are sort of, you can have the opposite of a placebo, I guess it's called a a nocebo effect, where you can get worse because you believe you should get worse.
1: Um, Sure, that's sometimes called the the placebo's evil twin, and it's not just a question of getting worse, Um, you can get side effects because you believe that there are going to be side effects.
0: And I, I remember reading, again, decades ago, like The, the Serpent and the Rainbow about, you know, uh, Haitian voodoo and and various societies in which the, the medicine man would curse you and then you would dutifully go home and die, right? Or, or you know, lose a limb or something. And it is, you know, how, how well have those sorts of things sort of outside of our culture been studied in terms of placebo effect? Can it be, can things be that stark?
1: Well, of course, it's very hard uh, to study in a a really controlled uh, way for obvious reasons. There were studies done by uh, an anthropologist by the name of Cannon uh, decades ago on voodoo death. And he also came up with a physiological explanation uh, of how it might occur. People were literally getting scared to death when they were uh, being cursed. And... uh, uh, the, the physiological explanation that was written about more recently and seems to hold as a possibility, but again, it's a, a difficult thing to study, and and uh, I would not have great certainty in mm. it. Mm.
0: So, uh, do we know to some extent how placebo works? The, the you know, assuming that there is a a physiological bridge between the mind and, and this, the workings of our cells?
1: Well, first let's start, uh, talk about the uh, subjective effects of, of because so that's, that's what's strongest, and and we shouldn't dismiss it because medicine has two purposes. One is to extend light, and the other is to uh, alleviate discomfort. So a lot of the things that we, we're doing, focusing on in medical treatment, don't extend life, but alleviate discomfort, diminish pain, for example. And uh, these are subjective effects by, by definition, and so they're very important. And that's where you see the strongest placebo effects when you're dealing with um, subjective phenomenon like pain, anxiety, depression, and so on. Now, the thing that's interesting about it, of course, is our consciousness, our experience, is linked to a particular organ in our body, and that's the brain. So whenever there's a change in experience, whether it be a reduction in pain, uh, an alleviation of anxiety, mm-hmm. that's also going to be manifested in the brain. And what we have been seeing are neurophysiological uh, studies, brain imaging studies, where we look at the areas of the brain that are affected when you get pain reduction, for example, that's the best study uh, by giving someone a placebo.
0: Okay. So So that something like that, you can just say, well, you know people will notice certain things and not notice other things. So you know, if you're distracted, pain is, is less bad, so that, that that's the whole, subjective part that somehow that somehow someone's brain is actively either, either not necessarily fooling themselves, but simply focusing on something else and so experiences their life in a, in a better way. But there's there's also, yeah sorry, go ahead. There's
1: not, it's not just distraction. Uh, and, and that's very clear because in the studies that are done on pain, um, looking at placebo effects, There's no attempt to distract people from it, just the opposite. People are asked to focus on it Mm. so that they can report what's happening to uh, to their pain levels and to to pay careful attention to it and to rate them on an ongoing basis. That's not consistent with distraction, but what we see are changes in the activity in brain areas that are specifically linked to pain. And that tells us it's not just a question of them turning away from it, but actually uh, that they are experiencing less pain. Mm-hmm. And and what
0: about the uh, the uh, you know the non-subjective effects, the things that can be that can be measured, um, you know, completely independently of, of perception?
1: I think most of the physiological effects are tied to perception. Uh-huh. And and to experience now, there's some others you can when, when uh, you uh, have placebo treatment for uh, asthma. Some on the, some conditions, you seem to be able to get uh, physiological changes in, uh, in and and in some cases not. And when you're treating Parkinson's disease, it can be a large effect placebo effect in the treatment of Parkinson's disease. You also can get it on movement uh, measures. No. When you're treating things like uh, there was a major study that was done on osteoarthritis of the knee, placebo surgery for osteoarthritis of the knee, and you get a, a good size effect on walking and climbing. But I think those are also tied to um, the perceptual effect, the feeling of less pain.
0: Gotcha. So, so th- th- which leads to a kind of a, a- Sort of an ethical quandary or a paradox, where if you're telling people that really it's your mind is doing this stuff, could you know, couldn't we just tell people that they could do it without the drug? That you know, that just teach people to create their own placebo effect in 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 the brain. Does that does that work at all, or do we always need a, a tool, a pill, or a procedure, or, or or some kind of intervention?
1: Well, I think that's the next step is how to harness placebo effect. There are two uh, approaches to that that are not mutually exclusive that have been pursued and that we are pursuing right now. One is the use of open-label placebo, that is giving people placebo and telling them it's a placebo and explaining to them how the placebo works and how they can make uh, use of that. We've done that with irritable bowel Syndrome, uh, most notably, investigating other areas as well, and have, have had very much success uh, with that. So that's one approach. Another approach is to use uh, procedures like uh, hypnotic suggestion, uh, which is also used in irritable bowel syndrome to good effect, and may be largely based on a placebo effect, but again, without deception, um without having to. Take a pill with knowing exactly what you're doing and being able to find a way to harness uh, the self healing capacity of the human brain. Mm.
0: And are those the open label uh, placebo effects similar in magnitude to the ones when people are being, quote, deceived?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, We haven't made direct comparisons from what I can see. Uh, indirectly the, the effect is quite high we seem to be getting stronger effects with open label placebo than you typically typically get with double blind placebo which is how things are done in clinical trials where you tell people you may be getting a placebo you may uh, not we seem to be able to get better effects telling people this is a, a, a placebo and explaining to them how and why it might work even though they know it's a placebo Hmm. It's, it's interesting because it,
0: as I'm thinking about it, it almost reminds me of sort of like a, a religion where if, you know, if the entire culture all believes something, then it's a very power. It, it can have a much more powerful effect than if just an individual believes it or suspects it. And, you know, in traditional societies with the shaman or the medicine man, everyone shared a belief, a basic cosmology in our society, the only thing we all really believe in, push comes to shove, is medical science. And some, you know, I'm wondering how we can move beyond that into saying, well, the brain has its own innate healing capacity that Western science really hasn't honored very much.
1: Well, I don't think we have to move away from Western medical science in order to do that. Instead, I think, what we can be doing and are doing is incorporating understanding uh, of the placebo effect and studies and scientific studies of the placebo effect, uh, incorporating that into uh, medical science.
0: Mm. So sort of marketing it uh, to the general public so it becomes an accepted treatment modality.
1: Well, first of all, understanding it uh, and understanding how, Uh, physicians and healers of various kinds, uh, uh, health workers of various kinds, can make use of it without exception. One thing we're learning, for example, and uh, that has been studied, I think people are very open to it, uh, accepting now, increasingly so, is the importance of the uh, uh, clinician-patient relationship in producing positive uh, outcomes across a, a variety of disorders. So what, and that's part of the placebo uh, effect. That's part of the things you want to control for when you're studying the effect of uh, a medication. So that's part of the placebo effect. And there's a placebo component within any bona fide medical treatment. If it's for a disorder that, that's amenable to a placebo effect, If you boost that component, you're likely to boost the response to the active treatment. One way of doing that is by enhancing the doctor-patient relationship, having a a, uh, a clinician who is spending time with the patient who's listening, who's uh, empathetic, and uh, has the time to engage with the patient and form an alliance, that kind of clinician patient relationship is likely to produce better outcomes than a rushed, hurried uh, physician that doesn't have the time to engage with the patient.
0: Mm. Boy, wouldn't that be amazing if that became part of best practices that, you know, you could get uh, brought before the HMO board if you were spending less time because that was going to lead to clinically worse outcomes. That's right. Hmm. What, what about so? So I can see. You know, the, there's no downside to having a good relationship. But what about let's say you know there's a, a doctor who has a patient who and you're, you're giving them some some drug that you know you know from clinical trials has maybe a three percent chance of working. Would you tell them that, or would it? You know, it's such an ethical quandary. Like if you could tell them the, the 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 data as opposed to. I'm certain this will work for you, or you're the sort of person who can get great results from this. You know, you know what I'm asking. Like, either either way, if you tell the stark truth or you you build it up, maybe in, in not in accordance with the data. Which which one is the the worst sin, or which which one is the the best way to do no harm and to do help?
1: Well, I don't believe in deceiving uh, patients. I think honesty is important. I think uh, autonomy. Is an important ethical principle that needs to be uh, respected. I think people need to be asked. Now, I think there should be, it, it, it makes sense to, to uh, encourage positive expectations, but realistically positive expectations and ones that are not counter uh, to the data.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, because I, I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Kelly Turner, who's, who's written a book called Radical Remission. You know, sort of people making these miraculous, according to Western medicine, um, recoveries from cancer that was deemed like, you know, there's nothing more we can do for you. And, you know, so I would, in a sense, I'd, I'd, I'd want to include that data, but it's, it's kind of hard to know how to, how to do that when you have, you know, the labels, the, the packet inserts from the drugs, and yet you know that there's this outlier possibility that something amazing could happen.
1: I think one can discuss outlier possibilities and and, uh, honestly let people know, look, there are cases of spontaneous, what appear to be spontaneous remission that one would never suspect. And uh, the literature has has written that up. There may be the fact some of that may be due to uh, various factors, but to, to honestly present what we know, so that patients can make an informed choice and an informed decision.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So let's, let's move into um, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about and, and how your, your work came onto my, my radar. Which was what at, at a certain point, you were looking for really likely places for the placebo effect to be large and noticeable. And you, you, you mentioned that you couldn't find it at all with infections and antibiotics. It just didn't seem to be any. And it, it was fairly large with pain. And so you and some colleagues thought that depression would be a great place to study placebo. Um, what,
1: what made you think that? Well, one of the central features of depression is a sense of hopelessness. And sometimes what people are hopeless about is their own condition of, uh, of of being depressed. I feel like this is the worst thing in my life, this depression that I'm experiencing. And I've, I've gotten hopeless about ever getting out of it, ever uh, getting better again. And that, of course, is going to increase uh, my depression. And so I've got this negative cycle uh, going. So one of the things that the promise of a possibly effective treatment, a new treatment might do would be to counter that sense of hopelessness, to to provide a sense of hope that maybe there is a possibility, maybe I can uh, get better. And that's particularly important with depression, given that hopelessness is a central feature of depression. So uh, it makes sense to me on that basis that uh, anything that would instill a sense of hope for a depressed person about their own depression um, would lead to some beneficial change. And so I thought, you know, when I started this, I assumed that antidepressant drugs were effective, but I figured that in addition to the drug having an effect, there should also be a a good-sized placebo effect, and that led me to start evaluating that.
0: Okay. And what was the first... uh sense that you had that the drugs weren't as effective as the pharmaceutical industry was, pr- was promoting them as?
1: It came from studying those data. What we were interested in was comparing what happens on placebo treatment compared to what happens if you don't get uh, the placebo, if you don't get any treatment at all. And the only place that we could find data on depressed patients being uh Given placebos was in the drug trials, so we, those are where we got. That's where we got those data. But that meant we also had the data on the drug, and so we looked at that as well. And I was initially quite surprised to see how small the drug placebo difference was for something that had been heralded as constituting a revolution in the treatment of uh, depression. And that began to shift the focus of some of my research to looking at the drug-placebo difference in depression, how much of what was uh, happening when you gave somebody an antidepressant, how much of that was a placebo effect, and how much was a drug effect. And did some subsequent meta-analyses after that, after that and found that the largest component of the response was being. Was D- uh, duplicated by placebo. That is, uh, you would get almost as much better if you had a placebo pill than if you, t- uh, if you took a, an antidepressant with the difference between the response to the placebo and the response to the antidepressant being minuscule, not, not being clinically meaningful at all.
0: Right. Now, you first published this, I think, in the mid-90s when... Um Meta analyses themselves were a fairly new and controversial way of looking at data, and you know, you you write that your study was published with basically a cigarette warning around it, saying that this is this is dangerous stuff. We think it might be interesting and of value, but like really warning people about how controversial this concept was. Um,
1: what the concept of meta analysis, of course, that's no longer true. Meta-analysis is now uh, accepted. It's no longer controversial. It becomes uh, the, most, uh, the best tool that we have and, and most commonly used tool for evaluating the effectiveness of something against the placebo or for any decision based on a large number of studies. It's the way we pool studies together to understand if we, what are we learning if we take all the studies, put them together, and see what they're finding.
0: So but even at that point, you know, the it wasn't just the fact of the meta analysis, it was what you found um, that there there were objections coming out of the woodwork from every possible angle, trying to discredit the work, trying to show that you hadn't seen what you had seen. So one of these was around um, which studies you chose to include. Right. So so can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I mean, people said, how could you find something like that? We know antidepressants work. If you found such a small difference, you must have been looking for the wrong studies. So one of the, what we did next was to replicate our own study with a whole different set of clinical trials. And we went to what should be the definitive database. We used the Freedom of Information Act. We went to the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, um, and, obtained from them uh, data on uh, the clinical trials that had been submitted to them by the drug companies in the process of uh, getting approval for what at that time were the six most widely used antidepressant uh, drugs. And that turned out to be very important because it turned out that uh, four out of ten of the clinical trials sponsored by the drug companies had never been published they were unknown. The data was uh, not available other than at that time using the Freedom of Information Act and going to the FDA to get them. And uh, you won't be surprised to learn that the trials that were not published were those that showed the least benefits for the drugs. So by going to the FDA, we now have data from not only the published trials, but also the unpublished trials. We had the data from all of the trials that the FDA had being to be uh, adequate, adequate and well-controlled trials. And we were able to put them together and see what the effect was. And what we found was that the difference between drug and placebo was even smaller than we had found just looking at published literature.
0: Okay. So, so a, brief, a brief detour there about how the FDA works. They get, the, the pharmaceutical companies have to give them all their data they don't have to publish all of the data, but how, how does the FDA determine whether to give uh, a new new drug approval? You, you know, if 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 40% of the trials show no effect or almost no effect or maybe even a negative effect compared to placebo, do they have to consider that or like how how do they make that decision?
1: Their rule is that there has to be two clinical trials showing a statistically significant difference between drug and placebo. Now there are two catches to that. One catch is there's no limit on how many trials you can run in order to get the two positive trials. So you might run seven trials and find two that are positive and then you submit that to the FDA and the FDA will approve it even though five of the trials uh, did not show positive results. So that's one thing. The second catch is that it doesn't matter how large the difference is. It has to be statistically significant. If you have enough subjects in a trial, you can get a statistically significant difference with a very small effect. And the fact that it's a small effect that wouldn't make any real difference in a person's life, that's not part of what is looked at by the FDA in approving antidepressants. When you read the, minutes of their meetings it's clear that they talk about this issue let's say you know that our rules are just have to be statistically significant it may be a small effect and it may be that it's only turned up in two out of seven or eight or nine trials but those are our our rules
0: so you're saying that if like i'm a terrible basketball player but if i wanted to make a highlight reel and i just shot three-pointers, like, all day, and I made two of them, I could submit that to the Knicks or the Celtics, and they would just have to consider those in determining my...
1: Like, is that... that's? I have to confess, I don't know a lot about basketball, but that sounds like an appropriate analogy to me. Here's the words that I saw in the minutes of of, uh, uh, some FDA deliberations that led to approval of one of the antidepressants. Well, gee, they could just do studies till the cows come, cows come home until they find the two that get them significant results.
0: Uh, is, is there any movement in, in medical or scientific or academic circles to, to change that? Because it sounds crazy. It sounds like as long as you have enough money, you can get anything approved.
1: I don't see any movement. The one thing that I see is a movement towards greater transparency, towards making all the data available. And there's a campaign all, it's called All Trials, a campaign that uh, is attempting to get regulations internationally which would uh, mandate pharmaceutical uh, companies to make available all of the data of all the trials they conduct. And I think that's an, an important movement.
0: Mm. Now, you also talked about the idea of the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. In other words, is, is it a difference that makes a difference? You, you found that the difference between placebo and the antidepressant drugs was pretty minimal on this Hamilton scale of depression, right?
1: That's right. In fact, it's so small that if a patient uh, were to improve by that amount Treat, a treating clinician would rate that as no change at all.
0: So for an individual, it's it's a meaningless difference, and it, it's only it's only significant statistically because there were so many thousands of people in these trials.
1: Yeah, it's not these thousands. It's uh, typically smaller, much smaller than that. But uh, trials are large enough so that a relatively small effect can give you a statistically significant difference. Let me give you an example for that. Imagine that a study has been done on 500,000 people. I'm going to give you an, an extreme example, and has found that smiling increases life expectancy by 10 seconds. Now, who cares about the 10 seconds? But with that many subjects with that large a trial 10 seconds difference is, is almost certain to be statistically significant even though it's clinically meaningless
0: and so that that difference in the hamilton d scores i think it was like what, what 1.8% with some data set or 1.8 points
1: yeah it's it, you know our data being controversial has been uh, our our meta-analysis have been replicated over and over again. Now, some by critics, some pe- by some people who, by people who weren't necessarily critics, using the same data set we had, using a larger data set. I've seen one uh, meta-analysis that uh, used uh, was able to get all of the data, all of the data from all the trials ever done by these. Uh, ever, ever sent to the FDA and all the drugs, all the antidepressant drugs um, that was done in-house in the FDA. And everybody gets basically the same results, about a two-point difference between drug and placebo.
0: Okay. Now, w- one of the ways the, the industry, now obviously the, ph- you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry that makes these antidepressants and the psychiatric profession that prescribes them, didn't really like your conclusions, and especially because since they knew that antidepressants worked, they were trying to figure out all the ways in which you could have possibly gotten it wrong. One of the things they kept saying was that you're, you're looking at the wrong types of patients. So is there a difference in the effect, in the placebo effect, in the drug effect in mild or moderate or severe depression?
1: Well, we actually did look at that in our uh, meta-analysis that we published in 2008. Um, We looked at people who are moderately depressed and people who are very severely depressed. Um, We found that severity does make a difference. So the more severely depressed the person is, the greater the drug placebo difference, but it's always very small, even for the very severely uh, depressed uh, patients. And for most of the very severely depressed patients, it's not clinically meaningful at all. For the mild, moderately depressed patients, it seems to be zero difference between drug and uh, and placebo.
0: Right. And you write that the difference in the severe depressed population is that the placebo is working less well, not that the drug is working better. Is How, how does that work?
1: Well, one of the things we think it might be due to is people breaking blind, people that are... Uh, on the antidepressant drugs are more likely to experience side effects. Based on that, they are likely to know, oh, I'm not in the placebo group. I'm in the antidepressant uh, group, uh, and that way, since they have more confidence that they're getting a real treatment, they will show a larger drug effect. And we know that from studies. We know that when you do trials that are uh, open label, where you just where there is no placebo. Uh, condition, or, or they might be comparing just two active antidepressants, and again, no placebo condition, and people know that they are getting an active antidepressant, you get a better response to the drug than in trials with the same drug, when people are thinking, oh, well, this is placebo-controlled, so I might be getting a placebo. So people might be breaking blind. There are two studies that have been done looking at... Um, People who have been on antidepressants before and now going to a clinical trial and people who haven't been on antidepressants before, those who haven't been on antidepressants before, there's absolutely zero difference between the drug and the placebo. You only see a difference in people who've been on the antidepressants before. Those are the people who are likely to know what the side effects are. And when they don't get those side effects, they're likely to conclude, oh,
0: uh, I must be on the placebo. Mm-hmm. So th- this concept of breaking blind is so interesting, and I really hadn't considered it before from the perspective of the participant in the trial. But the way you describe it, the, that that person is desperate to figure out, or is desperately wondering: Am I going to get better or not? Am I in the real group or the placebo group? So how how does uh, how does breaking blind work and and what does what does side effects have to do with whether someone breaks blind or not
1: okay i don't know whether they're desperate and it's not just the patient that breaks blind it's also the physician the clinician who may be doing the ratings on how much better a person has uh, has gotten but people wonder if they you know if, if you were a a, a in a clinical trial and you knew you might be getting a placebo, you might be getting an active drug, wouldn't you wonder which group am I in? I would certainly uh, wonder. Now, when you go into a clinical trial, you have to give, be given a chance to, you have to get informed consent. That means that the experimenters have to tell you about what they're gonna do and then you have to agree based on that information uh, to be in the trial. And one of the things they tell you is that it's double blind, that you may be getting a placebo. And another, things that, another thing that they tell you is that the real drug uh, may produce side effects. And they tell you exactly what side effects have been reported for that drug. So if you then go into the clinical trial and you experience the side effects that uh, you were told the drug produces, you're likely to break blind to conclude that oh, I'm in the real drug condition. Whereas if you're in the placebo condition, uh, you won't experience that those side effects, and you won't uh, uh, be making the conclusion that oh, I must be in the real drug uh, condition. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, so and your hypothesis, because you you did discover that there was there was no. Um, you know, clinical difference between the drugs and placebos, and there was a tiny statistical difference sometimes, but it was always in favor of the drugs. So the placebo, you know, the, like the drugs are definitely a teeny weeny bit better than the placebos. Um, and but you you say that the, the, your hypothesis is that that's due to the side effects of the drugs. That it's what you call like a super strength placebo instead of a regular strength placebo.
1: I think that's one possibility, and a lot of data suggests that that is indeed what's going on. Now, maybe there is a very tiny real drug difference at all that would have some other reason. The important point at this point is that if there is any drug effect at all, it's very small. It's not enough to be clinically meaningful to a patient in their in, in their life, and. It's obtainable by various other forms of treatments, and that's important because these are potent drugs. They are potent medications. They produce side effects. They have health risks. It's just that chemically they do not do much for depression. We, and, and you said
0: that there there were studies of not just the older antidepressant drugs, the tricyclics and the newer ones, you know, the, the SSRIs, the Prozacs, but there were trials that showed barbiturates, sedatives, and synthetic thyroid hormone also as good as the antidepressants and slightly better than the placebos? Like, how is that possible? That's true. How is that possible?
1: Again, the breaking blind hypothesis would support that. But the one thing all these drugs haven't. And- common is that they produce side effects that people are going to notice and may break blind and them to have a stronger uh, placebo effect.
0: So, so one, one of the reverse engineering uh, aspects of your research is that, that everybody knows that uh, depression is a, a problem with brain chemistry, some sort of brain imbalance, some sort of uh, deficiency, which is not just true of depression, but also you know, anxiety, schizophrenia, these are all Brain-based chemical disorders, but we know this because the drugs that we've created for them seem to work. So, do, doesn't that kind of call into question this whole hypothesis that, uh, that you know, it's it's, it's a, a serotonin or a dopamine or, or some or, or a chemical imbalance?
1: Sure, I'm, I'm going to confine my my comments on that to the area of depression, which I studied most. Uh, uh, most uh, closely, although I I can say with with confidence that antidepressants are as ineffective in the treatment of anxiety as they are in the treatment of uh, depression. But you're absolutely right that the way in which this chemical imbalance hypothesis came about was having drugs usually done early on without controlled trials, as if they didn't do placebo controls because they hadn't yet realized how powerful the placebo could be. And they said, oh, look, these drugs seem to work. They seem to make people less uh, depressed. Let's see what those drugs do chemically. That must be the cause of depression. The reasoning is, 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 is really a little bit silly. It's like deciding, oh, look, morphine uh, blocks pain. Pain, therefore, must be due to a deficiency of morphine. <laughs>
0: That's, that's a great uh, analogy. So
1: um,
0: so then what do we, do we have any better sense of the etiology of depression based on the fact that placebo seems to be so powerful in ameliorating
1: it? Well, I don't want to make the same mistake that the uh, drug advocates made in coming up with causality of depression based on what treatment works what we do know about depression is that it's usually linked to some kind of negative event or events in one's life very often a, a significant loss a loss of a loved one a loss of a job uh, things like that can, can produce uh, depression in the way in which one thinks about and interpreting what it does to ones sense of, of hopefulness and about the future um, can uh, lead to someone being depressed for a longer period of time, but it's very often depression is very often a normal reaction to a terrible state of affairs. If we don't have to pathologize misery. Mm. So I was uh,
0: shortly after I watched your uh, your course. Um... Uh, on 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 Rizuku, I happened to find myself at a dinner across the table from someone who said that she was a psychiatrist. So I, I had to sort of remember my table manners and not get too feisty. But I sort of I was very curious because I had you know your your lecture was in my head very much front and center, and I kind of asked her like you know how she dealt with depression and and what did she think of some of these studies and she said oh absolutely we know that the SSRIs are are placebo. That's why I give them because it would be unethical to give actual placebos. And I just I want people to get better so that they start going to therapy. <laughs> and I was I was curious about your your thoughts on that. That you know again you know coming back to this ethics question, we don't want to deceive people, but giving you know it seemed to me to be crazy to give people these uh, psychoactive drugs with all these uh, known side effects because there are placebos. What, what's your thoughts about that?
1: Well, again, I don't believe that patients should be deceived. And what's very important in this area is that there are so many treatments that in the short run work as well as antidepressants, and that includes physical exercise programs, psychotherapy, and a whole gamut of psychotherapies for that matter. Acupuncture shows data that's very similar to that of of antidepressants and head-to-head comparisons. There's no difference between acupuncture and uh, and SSRIs. Uh, So there are all kinds of alternatives that don't carry the risks uh, that antidepressants carry. And there's some evidence that both psychotherapy and physical exercise can lead to better long-term outcomes. That is, patients who get better are much less likely to relapse if treated through psychotherapy or physical exercise than if uh, they've taken a, a drug. There may, there's even a possibility uh, from the data that uh, antidepressant drugs may increase the risk of relapse, uh, even compared to placebo, treatments. So I would never uh, advocate uh, giving an, uh, an antidepressant to someone in order to get the placebo effect. If you're going to go for the placebo effect, use something uh, less dangerous.
0: Hmm. So is is there a situation in which you would think that the the SSRIs or the tricyclics would still be appropriate, or you think they should just be relegated to kind of the, the dustbin of medical history, like, uh, you know, routine bloodletting and trepanning and other other things that we now see as, as just nuts?
1: Well, I, I, I have to tell you that my thinking on that has been gradually changing over the years. And I, I at first thought, well, these were at least partially effective drugs and could be given to help acutely get over the depression. And then the data convinced me that that was not the case. And then I used to say, up until very recently, um, antidepressants should be given as a last resort, never as a first-line treatment, but a last resort when people uh, uh, fail to respond to to other uh, treatments. Now, looking at more of the data, uh, I'm skeptical even of that, uh, to the point where I would say that I don't think antidepressants should be given to anyone who's not taken them before. There's no evidence that they will do any good at all for someone who's not taken them before. There is evidence that they will do harm, including long-term risk of being uh, depressed.
0: Mm. That's that's pretty pretty stark, and especially you know, so so many of the uh, the statements I've made, you've kind of qualified, and I know you from from reading your research that you're very very cautious in in. Making sweeping statements, so that's uh, you've uh, y- your your research is clearly um, you know presented a, an argument that I, th- I find very hard for anyone to refute who doesn't have a lot of skin or money in the game of, of selling these drugs.
1: Thank you, but I will note one qualification that was in that last statement. I was talking about people who have never been on antidepressants before. It's a very much more difficult. A dilemma that one faces with people who've been on the antidepressants uh, before. Uh, part of it may be due to the the uh, effect of, of uh, withdrawal that one gets when they're taken uh, off of antidepressants. They, they work in some ways like addictive drugs for many uh, people. And if you have someone that has gotten relief on antidepressants uh, and has been on it before, and maybe more prone to relax because they've been on it before. That's a more difficult situation, and I'm not sure what I would suggest for that. But for someone who has never been on an antidepressant, beginning to take one is the worst approach to dealing with uh, depression. Gotcha. So what, uh, what,
0: what research are you doing now? What, what questions linger or, or, or new avenues of, of, uh, of curiosity and wonder for you?
1: Throughout, well, my colleagues and I are continuing to explore uh, what we call open-label placebos, honest placebos, placebos given uh, honestly and non-deceptively. Uh, we're looking at that in a number of different disorders. Uh, we have looked at that in, in um, irritable bowel syndrome. We're working on a study to replicate that and compare it to what seems to be the most potent medication uh, that has been uh, they use for irritable bowel syndrome. We're looking at it in chronic low back pain. Uh, there's been a feasibility study looking at it in depression, and uh, we're trying to see if we can extend that into a uh, full-scale clinical trial. So that's one of the areas that we're going into at this point. Mm-hmm. And has, has all your, your
0: professional work with placebos changed the way you deal personally with your own health and with decisions about treatment?
1: Well, that's a good question. I certainly, my, my research over the last 15 years or so on uh, looking at antidepressants and things that I would have never suspected before looking into the literature certainly does get me to be more cautious uh, in medications uh, that I am prescribed. And sometimes I will want to look at the data and and. Check out the the, um, the the clinical trials that have been done for myself, and that's so why I'm more cautious than I have been in the past. <laughs>
0: mm. And have, have you ever um, like tried to sort of harness your own placebo effect, um, you know, to to enhance it or to kind of look at how mind can uh, can make us well?
1: I certainly. Uh, make use of, of uh, techniques that are using cognitive behavior therapies in dealing with
0: uh, my own issues in life. Gotcha.
1: Well, so uh, Dr. Irving Kirsch,
0: I'm so grateful for your work. When I first saw it and then and then reading, And I should mention that you have uh, a fascinating book, The Emperor's New Drugs Exploding the Antidepressant Myth. I guess it's now uh, six years old or seven years old. Um and it's, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's such a breezy read. I'm, I'm always worried when I start look, picking up a, a, a medicine or science book that's gonna be kind of very, very dense, but this was so conversational and, and logical and, and written both for the scientific community and the layperson, and just the, the curiosity and integrity of your approach just Shines through, and I'm so grateful for your work, and I'm so grateful for the chance to explore it with you today.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thanks for mentioning the book, and it's been a pleasure uh, to chat with you about this today.
0: All right, well, continue uh, going from strength to strength. I I will follow your research and be well. Thanks, you too. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on over 140 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so in three main ways. You can share this and other episodes on social media or via email with anyone you think would enjoy or benefit from the conversations. You can write a review on Stitcher or iTunes, and you can become a patron by pledging either an ongoing donation or a one-time amount to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. Over on the right sidebar. And the more regular monthly income I can count on from the podcast, the better I can make it. You know, even labors of love have expenses, and this one is expanding to take up more and more of my time and energy. And that's wonderful. But even a dollar a month means a lot in terms of feedback that this work is appreciated and valued. I have an announcement. I have a new course online that you can take. It's called the Proteinaholic Transition Course, named after the book Proteinaholic that I wrote with Dr. Garth Davis. And the course is essentially a video-based online course designed to help you transition easily and deliciously to a plant-powered diet. Right now I'm doing what I call a soft launch to work out any remaining bugs. So I'm looking for super motivated folks who would like to transition to a plant-powered diet but haven't cracked the code yet. Maybe you're not sure what to cook, or how to cook, or how to find the time, or how to afford it, or how to deal with family, or friends, or social pressure, or how to deal with cravings, or whatever. Whatever's holding you back. This course is designed to bring you through all of that. And here's how super motivated you have to be to give it a try now. You have to remember this URL, proteinaholic.com well. That's W-E-L-L. The first series of videos is on mindset, and it's in front of the paywall. So those are publicly available. There's about 13 of them, I think. The next six series of videos, uh, about 80 in total, are behind the paywall, which is configured as pay what you can. So you can pay the recommended amount, which is $99, which is a little over a dollar a video, or you can pay more, or you can pay less, or you can even pay nothing at all. And that may change, but for now, that's how it is. So if you want to get in on the ground floor, have a lot of my attention and give me feedback on what's working and what still needs work, that webpage once again is proteinaholic.com well. In garden news, two things. One, the chickens have started laying like crazy all of a sudden. I'm not sure what other chicken sanctuaries do with their eggs, but we're giving some to our neighbors in compensation for all the times the chickens sneak into their yards and eat their bird seed. We're growing seedlings indoors now, and now we're putting them under cheap fluorescent lights that I got at Lowe's for like 20 bucks for two four-foot fluorescent light bulbs. And we'd save hundreds of dollars by not getting the recommended full-spectrum natural daylight specialty lighting from the gardening catalogs. And it occurred to me that sometimes settling for good enough is a very good idea. So here's my question. Where are you waiting to take action until everything is perfect? Is there an imperfect action you can take right now just to get things into motion? That's it for this week. And as always, be well, my friends. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkas, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, <laughs> hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Fronczak, Jeanette Benham, Gillis, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Jerome Avizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ann Funderburg Misha Rosen Michael Warbeck The equally mysterious Tracy Z Aviva Lael Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes Val Linneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon Nick Harper Martha Bergner Susan and Nolly Levine The inscrutable Harry R Susan Laverty The panda vegan Craig Kovic Adam Sharp, Karen Burry Heather Morgan Kelly Machia D.N. Norton Bonnie Lynch at Plant Happy Oregon Sabina Kurtzels Nigel Davies Marion Blum Teresa Cobble Julian Rodkins Breed O'Connell Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isatu Zinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Jo Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Summer Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Stephen Steven Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Diane Bishop, Bill Briel, Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Briel, and Kramer Lenth, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Shell Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paran Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Alison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sawyer Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lucian, and Sarah Johnson